This is ASHA Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. After a traumatic brain injury or other event such as a stroke, someone may experience wide-ranging difficulties related to their emotions, cognition, and their ability to communicate. When it comes to cognitive rehabilitation, it takes a team to help patients and clients meet their goals. Today on the podcast, a patient-centered look at where psychology and speech-language pathology overlap and interact. Our guests share strategies for collaboration when access to the other profession is limited and offer some thoughts on what to do when clients and patients ask about the potential for COVID-19-related cognitive effects. You can see how, depending on how the clinician responds to the patient's concern about what they're seeing in the science or in the media, has a huge potential impact on what happens next. I'm J.D. Gray. This is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. Interested in learning more about the changes in healthcare reimbursement that affect how you provide services? Check out new resources that explain how your skills fit into value-based care and alternative payment models. Learn more at on.asha.org APM. Our guests today come from different professional backgrounds, but they share a common goal, cognitive rehabilitation. Bridget Waldron-Prine is a neuropsychologist and a rehabilitation psychologist. She's a clinical associate professor at Michigan Medicine and director of the Outpatient Neurorehabilitation Program. She's also clinical faculty at Wayne State University. She's co-chair of the Joint Committee on Interprofessional Relations between the American Psychological Association and ASHA. McKay Moore Solberg is also a member of that committee and a faculty member at the University of Oregon. That's where she is director of the Communication Disorders and Sciences Program and co-director of the Brain Injury and Concussion Clinic. I begin our conversation by asking them plainly, what are the areas that call for psychologists and SLPs to work together? And where do we see clients' needs overlap between the professions? McKay speaks first. I think we work together in all areas, so in cognitive rehabilitation, Speech language pathologists may be doing a lot of the, of some direct intervention and may be planning that therapy based on neuropsychological testing that was provided by the neuropsychologist. Both professions may be working in tandem on similar issues. A speech language pathologist would be relying on the neuropsychologist or psychologist to help make sure that we're not reinforcing pathology or that we're helping promote self-efficacy and motivation. It's hard to think about actually being separate in terms of one working just on one area and another profession, the other profession working just on another area. Yeah, I, I completely agree with, with what McKay said. Bridget Waldron Perrine. And and agree, you know, I think most importantly with that that last piece about us really truly working collaboratively in order to make the intervention optimally effective. Oftentimes, speech language pathologists are engaging in sort of the functional practice of cognitive rehabilitation more directly with patients, teaching them particular strategies or, or practicing strategies with them, whereas the psychologist is often kind of paying more attention to some of those psychological factors that can be barriers to optimal cognitive rehabilitation or can be challenges that that have to be addressed in that context. 
oftentimes the barriers that that come up with patients are related to their beliefs about their cognitive abilities or cognitive disabilities, their beliefs about their own self-efficacy and capability of applying um, these practice elements, you know, specifically in their own home environment. And so, you know, I think that the speech language pathologists are often in a position to be the one to notice these factors coming up and then to work collaboratively with the psychologist to make sure that they're not negatively impacting rehabilitation and that they're being adequately addressed. Could you give me an example of a client who might come in and just kind of talk me through that process? I have a patient recently referred for cognitive rehabilitation to both uh, the psychologist and the speech-language pathologist in the context of a longstanding history of of epilepsy and a strongly held belief in a significant amount of cognitive loss. In working with um, the patient and the speech-language therapist, you know, we approached the patient sort of together to determine what the patient's goals for our individual disciplines might be, as well as what some of the psychological factors that might influence the ability to engage successfully in cognitive rehabilitation might be. So one example that I often use with patients is this idea that if you have a significant amount of worry about your cognitive function, that worry is kind of similar to a balloon that can sort of take up space in your mind and squeeze out the ability to do thinking things. And so helping the patient understand the influence of their beliefs and their emotional experiences on their cognitive abilities, and also making sure, as McKay said, that there's consistent messaging across the disciplines with regard to the importance of self-efficacy and an emphasis on abilities instead of disabilities and on compensations instead of ruminations about losses or changes, that's something that really has to be emphasized across disciplines in order for it to be effective. So, So I think taking this approach where we explore the patient's goals and their beliefs about their cognition collaboratively can really set the patient up for success. What I'm hearing you say is that if a patient comes in and says, oh, this is something that I'm not going to be good at or I won't find success in and I'm worried about it, that that's going to make it harder for them to achieve goals because they'll have this negative mindset? I think it's important to recognize that we all hold on to those kinds of ideas to a greater or lesser extent. And when those kinds of ideas are held very strongly, they can become behavioral barriers to treatment success. I completely agree with what Bridget's explained. And in another example, we might think about traumatic brain injury, where the cognitive impairments may be primary, and the SLPs will be directly working on addressing them. And maybe there's structural brain damage, and they've got significant memory impairment. But the ways in which we directly do that We've been very influenced and learned from the psychology and neuropsychology field so that we do it in a way that's meaningful to the patients. We're selecting goals that they want to work on to help with motivation. Maybe they have grief and loss issues by having their long-term, what's going to look like long-term impairments in their cognitive abilities. So in the old days, we used to kind of parse them out and send them off to the psychologist to deal with their loss and grief while we worked on the cognitive issues. Now we would embed them and consult with the cognitive issues. So I think the type of patient um, 
matters. You know, again, whether the cognitive impairments are a direct result of the brain insult or whether they maybe are in, at least in part from some other factors like sleep or anxiety that take up that cognitive thinking space in the balloon that Bridget was referring to you bring up a really, really important point that I sort of discussed sort of the patients whose belief about their cognitive impairment is greater than the likelihood of actual cognitive impairment. But McKay brings up the very important case of brain injury or many different types of neurological insult patients who may be unaware or under aware of their cognitive deficit. And so in intervening on in those cases, the psychologist may have more of a role of helping, you know, the patient um, become more aware of or acknowledge their difficulties with cognition because if you are not able to acknowledge something as a problem, it's going to be difficult for you to address it as a problem and to really get the most out of the rehabilitation strategy. It sounds a little bit like what we're talking about is it's person-centered care. Yes. In 2018, the Joint Committee published an article on the ASHA Leader website about the importance of maintaining a person-centered care approach when treating a mild traumatic brain injury, sometimes referred to as a concussion. And they went through a few of the tools, motivational interviewing, goal attainment scaling, acceptance and commitment therapy. I asked Bridget and McKay to talk a bit about some of these tools and how they support the person-centered approach. The tools that that we have discussed within our interprofessional collaborative group are tools that started out as either sort of psychotherapy tools or or broad-based research tools and have increasingly been applied to various clinical approaches and have demonstrated a significant amount of potential for use in rehabilitation, and not just by psychologists, but by providers in general. So motivational interviewing is a technique that it has been shown to be incredibly effective in cultivating behavioral change in patients by exploring with them their ambivalence surrounding whether or not they wish to change and their resistance to change to some extent to help maximize their ability to engage in in meaningful change. And similarly, acceptance and commitment therapy is a a technique that is considered a psychotherapeutic technique, but has also been modified for the business arena and called uh, acceptance and commitment training. So it really is an overall philosophy as opposed to just a treatment intervention. And the premise of this approach is that people are going to have difficult thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations. And it is our job as humans to make space for those experiences, but not allow them to control us so that we can maintain focus on doing the things that matter to each of us as an individual human being. So clearly the person-centered component resonates in that context. And in rehabilitation, individuals are often experiencing extremely distressing thoughts, feelings, and physical sensations that they may be unprepared to manage. And so in the context of rehabilitation, having just the basic tools available to share those with patients is really, really important to facilitating person-centered rehabilitation. Goal attainment scaling is a technique that has been more utilized in research, but is a way that we can apply 
a consistent approach across individuals who may have different personally meaningful goals. And so the use of a strategy such as that is to really emphasize the importance of measuring progress in an objective way, but also doing it in a way that can be flexibly tailored to person-centered goals. So those are three tools that we identified that are often used within rehabilitation that we felt we could highlight and encourage providers to use even more so and more effectively with the populations that they serve. And we combine these tools. Bridget described goal attainment scaling, where we can make an objective scale for levels of progress. But the part that's person-centered is to make sure that we're picking goals that are meaningful to the individual client. And a mechanism for doing that would be to use motivational interviewing. Let's say we have somebody, an inpatient, and you ask them what they want to work on. A very common thing is I just want to get the heck out of here, usually said more colorfully. That's their goal. You know, a a motivational interviewing technique you might be wanting to explore. Well, what do you think is keeping you in here? Well, they say I can't leave until I can uh, use this call button for safety. Oh, okay. Well, so if we did that and helped you learn to use the call button, then you might be able to get out of here faster and move to the next phase. Would you like help in doing that? Well, if it would get me out of here, I want help. And then you're suddenly moving forward and you can say, so how many times are you using it now? And then you could start scaling it and set some goals. So we could marry the goal attainment scaling and the motivational interviewing to really collaboratively come up with a person-centered goal. And to add to that as well, ACT is all about exploring patient values and translating Act as acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah, and translating patient values to goals. So just to continue with what McKay said, our, our hope is for integration of these philosophies in clinical practice to really, you know, maximize the ability to identify patient-centered goals and then move the patient incrementally towards those goals. But all three of these processes put together uh, allow that to happen most effectively. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we talk about what to consider when clients and patients ask about the potential of cognitive effects as a result of COVID-19. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. Check out new resources on alternative payment models, or APMs. Learn how your services fit into the changing healthcare world and information about value-based care, including what APMs mean for reimbursement and how ASHA is engaging on issues surrounding APMs. Find those resources at on.asha.org APM. For many, this has been a very anxious year because of COVID-19. The virus has left a lot of people feeling isolated. It's also infected a lot of people, and we're still learning about the neurological problems associated with the virus. Recent research has suggested that about one in three people infected with COVID-19 develop neurological problems afterwards. This led me to think, when someone might have a neurological problem that's leading to a cognitive issue, I can imagine they might think that it's related to the virus. Or they might wonder if it comes from the isolation or anxiety of the past year. I asked our guests how one might begin to parse out the cognitive issues that could be a result of the pandemic. That's a a very good question. And the answer is, it's really hard. 
you know, you mentioned that recent article that suggested that one in three persons affected by COVID have neurological or psychiatric symptoms. But what we need to remember in how epidemiological studies are done is the precision with which those neurological or psychiatric diagnoses may have been made, right? So you mentioned the rate of anxiety in the general population in the context of there just being a pandemic, whether or not someone is affected by COVID. Then someone is affected by COVID, they have anxiety that's diagnosed, and that is then considered a consequence of COVID in this paper, right? So just because patients had neurological or psychiatric symptoms does not necessarily mean they have physiological neuropsychiatric sequelae associated directly with the COVID virus and its consequences. And so there's something in the psychology literature called diagnosis threat. That is the idea that if you label something as something, um, like concussion or like COVID brain fog, it then can create a self-fulfilling prophecy and expectation that that thing will be manifest. And so it is, to some extent, a health anxiety or an anxiety about cognitive functioning in, in many contexts. And so I'm already beginning to get a lot of patients who may have various pre-COVID psychiatric and neurological things going on that had a COVID infection or believe that they had a COVID infection and are having a lot of sequelae that they are positing is directly associated with their experience with the virus. And we know from a lot of literature and other populations that the types of symptoms that people often report long after a COVID infection are the same types of symptoms that people report in other types of disorders that have kind of broad-based and somewhat general malaise-type presentations associated with them. We do not yet understand what this virus does physiologically or to the immune system or to the inflammatory response of the body and what factors moderate and mediate that and how long those factors persist. We have very little understanding of the role of the social aspects of a global pandemic might play in, in this presentation with these symptoms after this event. And so when these patients show up in our clinics, the reality is for most cases, unless there's been a very clear ICU stay or ventilator dependency, you know, where we know that the patient was incredibly sick and that there probably are some very understandable systemic consequences of that severe illness that required significant medical intervention, in cases other than that, we don't really know how to explain the symptoms that happen. And so I think that similar to in concussion and other populations that have these long-term broad-based symptoms, we have to be very careful about not over-offering etiology because of the potential for that to be harmful or iatrogenic to the patient. For example, you can imagine 
a patient might come into the, the clinician's office and might be say to the clinician, you know, I read that article that says one in three patients with COVID have these symptoms. You know, I'm really feeling like the things that I've got going on fit me in that group and I'm really worried. The clinician can respond in one of two ways. One is like, well, you should be worried. COVID is a, a horrible, horrible thing that does horrible things to your body and you might be impacted and impaired for the rest of your life. There's no guarantee that you ever get better. Or they can say, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about COVID, so let's make sure that the cart isn't before the horse. Let's just address your experience as it is. These are the things that you're having trouble with now. Let's come up with a plan to address those things and just see how that goes and take it week by week. So you can see how, depending on how the clinician responds to the patient's concern about what they're seeing in the science or in the media, has a huge potential impact on what happens next and whether that patient becomes increasingly distressed and potentially increasingly impaired or is able to kind of just acknowledge what's happening now, try to do the best they can to manage it with the hope that those symptoms will will start to uh, disappear going forward. And, and I think it's really important that we all understand we're in an expert role and we need to be very careful with how we talk about these things that are still very unknown with the patients that we're seeing. I really appreciate Bridget's work that shows us how to validate what they're feeling without validating a disorder. I would just add that sometimes, you know, simply giving some psychoeducation. So for example, you start asking about sleep and um, everybody knows that if you're not getting enough sleep, you're going to have some, you know, attention issues and you might feel more forgetful or foggy. Then we can educate patients that perhaps some of these cognitive concerns are due to sleep problems you're having because you're anxious, for example. So I think we can kind of explore that. And, and for many patients, this will be a relief. And then we can, so educating them about how your cognitive resources are kind of used up when you have these other conditions and not invalidating their symptoms and saying, oh, you don't have cognitive symptoms, but instead of saying, you know, these are really can be troubling and really annoying, let's deal with them, but they're not necessarily due to some disruption in brain function. Yeah, and I want to highlight what McKay said about, you know, that expressing empathy for the patient's experience. And I think to a large extent, speaking of kind of post-COVID symptoms, normalizing those types of experiences in the context of the stress that has been globally experienced in the recent past. Of course, you're feeling this way. And of course, you're concerned about these difficulties in your thinking. Your thinking's really important to you. It totally makes sense that you're distressed. Let's figure out how to address those concerns, but not making it about this is evidence that something is broken inside your brain that may or may not be repairable. Because that offers to a patient a concern that may not be necessary and that could further negatively impact their rehabilitation experience. This year has been difficult in many ways, even for those who have not contracted the coronavirus. The pandemic has led many to stay at home and feel isolated. On top of that, the news from the past year can be anxiety-inducing, and I've heard people, even if they weren't diagnosed with COVID, express concerns about executive function or word-finding. I asked Bridget if she thought these concerns might be due to circumstances like isolation, and if they might clear up as the pandemic begins to wane. Absolutely. And something that 
we as psychologists often talk about and have shared with our SLP colleagues, and I think it's another really useful metaphor to share with patients, is the problem of the spotlight effect. And so when we're not doing much else, when we're just either kind of maybe working and doing some home stuff, but we're not engaging much, we don't have a lot of other things to pay attention to. And so we might start noticing things like blips in our thinking more so than we do when our lives are more full and we have other things to distract us from noticing or caring about those blips, right? So the spotlight goes on and then that becomes more of a concern. So we start to notice that problem more and more often, which can therefore exacerbate the problem because we're paying more attention to it. So so I do think that as people, you know, return to their normal activities, I think some of this concern about these types of symptoms will just sort of naturally wane. But there are also likely to be some people that have difficulty moving the spotlight and that we are likely to see for treatment. And sometimes, you know, the patient might see their primary care doctor who hears cognitive concern and refers that patient for speech language treatment. And the speech language pathologist realizes fairly quickly they're actually compensating already quite well for their difficulties. They're just quite anxious, right? And so sometimes I think this goes back to what McKay was saying about the importance of understanding what each discipline does and how to collaborate and coordinate care with one another. Because sometimes just coming together for a brief intervention can be much more helpful than having a long drawn out intervention that's chasing down the wrong target, but we don't become aware of that because of the way that we're framing the problem. Mm. And that goes back to being patient-centered. Absolutely. Yes. Always. At the end of our conversation, McKay and Bridget wanted to reiterate the importance of interprofessional collaboration and training, and the guests recognized a few of the challenges to this type of collaboration, like whether or not you can easily connect with someone from the other profession. There just aren't always a lot of psychologists working in the settings where speech-language pathologists are working, so they may not have have access to someone. I, I also think you know, like I would love to get cold calls or cold emails from from speech language pathologists that are like, hey, heard you'd be willing to talk to me. I have this thing, right? So I think we just need to encourage more willingness and wanting for interprofessional collaborative care. And I think demystifying, um, you know, what it is that the other discipline does. And again, I think it goes back to what we said about training, that teaching clinicians early on how to collaborate and how to engage with persons of other disciplines and how to break down barriers and set a culture of collaborative person-centered care in an environment where the history may not be that yet. So I think we have a lot of work to do to make this best practice approach more readily utilized, you know, across all clinics, changing how we approach training would go a long way in addressing this issue. What I'm hearing you say is part of it is changing how you address your patients, making sure that you're thinking, okay, should I refer them for this issue to a psychologist or is this something that I can treat with my speech language pathology expertise? The other part of it is building a network and community where you can help make sure that you're getting support for questions you might have as well for your patients. Yeah, I I think the the only caveat I would say is that sometimes it isn't referring to the psychologist necessarily, but working together with 
the other discipline because it may not require a full-on standalone treatment, right? It might just be some discussion that needs to happen that modifies an approach and kind of gets things moving in the direction that it's hoped. I think our goal is for it to be less formal and just be part and parcel of how the clinic functions in an ideal world situation. And I concur with everything that Bridget's saying, both in terms of the barriers and facilitators for interprofessional practice. I think one of the barriers that's hard to address is more the contextual or institutional barriers that come from you know, a medical setting that are really imposed sometimes by billing and what you get paid for and productivity demands where I might really want to email Bridget, hey, this is what the patient's saying, but I don't know whether this is more kind of brain-based or more reaction-based, psychological, you know, how would you handle it if I don't have time and I'm not really encouraged to do that because it takes time from my already large demands for documentation. And I think, you know, we as practitioners need to keep pressing forward to the institutions with whom we work and get creative about how we interact. How can we communicate in efficient and optimal ways? Because we know it's best practice. We know it makes a difference when we talk to each other and when we collaborate and, and coordinate. Yeah. And, and to continue to publish in those areas as well, to have a firmer ground to stand on and advocating with our institutions that person-centered care, even if it takes a little bit of extra time and is trickier to bill for, is still worth doing well. Bridget McKay, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You just heard neuropsychologist Bridget Waldron-Perrine and SLP McKay Moore-Solberg discuss interprofessional practice as a part of cognitive rehabilitation. The duo highlighted what is possible when psychologists and SLPs work together to deliver patient-centered care. They discussed using tools that show empathy for the patient and also how to help patients understand that cognitive symptoms don't necessarily mean that the patients have permanent brain damage. They highlighted the importance of consistent messaging across disciplines, incorporating a basic knowledge of the other professions into your toolkit, and working directly and collaboratively with someone from the other profession. Want to learn more about interprofessional collaborative practice? See Asha's special collection at on.asha.org interprofessional. Finally, I want to mention you can go to asha.org to find additional resources on traumatic brain injuries. I recommend the Asha Practice Portal, which has resources for traumatic brain injury in adults and children. Put a link to those pages on the blog post for this podcast episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's Office of Government Affairs and Public Policy. You can find their latest resources about alternative payment models and value-based care online. Check them out at on.asha.org APM. Production assistance for Asha Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices.